Should we care about inequality? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Vincent Geloso. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Vincent Geloso. Vincent is an assistant professor of economics at King's University College, who obtained his PhD from the London School of Economics. He was previously a postdoctoral researcher at Texas Tech University and visiting assistant professor of economics at Bates College. His research interests sit at the intersection of North American economic history, population economics, and political economy. Vincent has been widely published in academic journals. You can find his research in publications like the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, Public Choice, the Journal of Economic History, and Social Science Quarterly, just to name a few. He's also a regular speaker for the ILS, particularly in the ILS's annual French language seminar, the Seminaire d'Etudes Libérales, which takes place in Montreal every summer. Vincent, welcome to The Curious Task. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is, should we care about inequality? And I think we should kick it off by letting you frame the discussion. And I'll ask you a follow-up question immediately. What do you mean by inequality? The answer for should we care about inequality is a mixture of yes and no. And the definition that you're you're going to ask as a follow-up is that there's different sources of inequality. Some of them are not worrisome in the sense that, for example, uh, changes in populations, uh, changes in demography, uh, choices are things that we would find uh, not offensive for and from a pure egalitarian perspective. Uh, there are, however, sources of inequality that we may find offensive. Some of them are just those you inherit at birth, those we find offensive, and those that are uh, by virtue of the ability of the powerful to shape the rules of the games in a way that favors them. Uh, also, we would find offensive. So when people say, should we care about inequality? My answer is only those that are uh, limiting the ability of individuals to uh, improve uh, their personal well-being. In your in your uh, essay, which people can find online, I believe, uh, inequality, transaction costs, and, and choice, is, th- is this where you're talking about good inequality versus bad inequality, right? Yep. So here's like an example of good inequality. Uh, if we allow someone from Haiti to move from Port-au-Prince to Montreal uh, for no other reason that he's going to be better matched in terms of institution, that his property rights are going to be better respected, that he's also going to be better matched in terms of physical capital. He's going to become 10 times richer. By allowing him to move to Montreal from a global perspective, there'll actually be a fall in inequality because your his income will go up massively. Uh, for, however, from the perspective of Canada only, there'll be an increase in inequality because if the distribution of earnings of immigrants is not exactly the same as the population, they're swelling the extremes of the distribution. So you're bound to get an increase in inequality. And so, for example, there were uh, David Card from uh, Berkeley who pointed out that Roughly 5% of the increase in inequality in the United States uh, was entirely due, for, so not a large share, but still a small one, uh, but not negligible, was actually explained by the fact that there was a large number of immigrants that had entered the United States. Uh, in Canada, there's a, a bunch of economists from Simon Fraser, I think, who uh, in a paper in the Canadian Journal of Economics uh, checked what happened if you concentrated only on uh, people who were born in Canada. So what happens to their inequality as a group? So you're removing uh, those who enter and you find that actually there's been no increase in inequality, for example, from 
the late 1980s to the early 2000s. So it's basically, this is what we call a good source of inequality, but just here it's a story of measurement uh, that we get. So we're not measuring the same population over time. We get a distributional shift, but it's not actually something that we should care about from the perspective of just measuring human well-being. The Canadians is not losing in any sense, uh, especially since we know from the bulk of the immigration literature that there's at the very least modest gains for native uh, the native uh, host population from immigration. Uh, and we also know that the immigrant himself is a massive gainer in that story. So there's clearly no sign that immigration in this case would be a bad thing. We know that it's something we'd like. But just looking at the one dimension of inequality, then we'd be like, okay, but we shouldn't allow the immigrant. No, 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 not at all. We should let him in. There's actually a very good case for letting him in. But in that situation, that source of inequality is not something we ought to be concerned about because on every dimension, it's related to an improvement for everyone in terms of human well-being. Right. And that's, that's, a, that's a good type of inequality. Yes, that would be inequality. an example of a good type of inequality. And, and a bad inequality goes back to the, what you were discussing before, right? If there's systematic things put in place that create the inequality. Yes. But think about like think about an example of bad inequality, just being born in the bad place. Uh, mm. uh, being born in the 80 is just being born in a country with bad institutions that don't respect property rights, that don't respect human rights. It's really uh, a misfortune for all intents and purposes. But there's another inequality that we add on top, for example, sometimes by l preventing people from moving from poor places to rich places where their incomes and their living standards will be massively greater. This is like two sources of bad inequality is what we put in people's way that harm them, that prevent them for uh, that prevents them from uh, raising themselves up, but also what is also misfortunes of life, where where you're born, uh, did you did you get lucky? Basically, uh, these two forms of inequality we can find offensive, uh, but they're not. You can't bundle it all together. We have to go through an effort of decomposing the different sources of inequality, so as to respect the idea that what we care about is not the distribution per se, but the fact that we want people at the bottom uh, to have chances at upward mobility and that those at the top are not protected from uh, from competition or get rents or basically regressive rents so that they get transfers from the lower end of the distribution to prop themselves up. Uh, these would be, but in this situation, both of these examples, it's related to utility and well-being rather than uh, and this, the inequality itself. Ultimately, what you're saying is that it's not the inequality itself we should be worried about, but how that inequality, whatever that may look like, has exactly. come to be. Exactly. That's the way. The, its source is what we should be concerned about. And the example I like to give my students when I, like another one that I give them is, uh, if we have two individuals, a hedge fund banker and a Benedictine monk, uh, the hedge fund banker clearly earns much more than the monk. Uh, and more probably his income is increasing faster than the monk. However, if we were to offer the monk the choice to take the hedge fund banker's position at the wages of the banker, right. and he refuses, then it's not a source of inequality that we should be concerned about. Both parties are are telling us that they're actually happy with the present situation, uh, that on a certain, uh, the way the the monk maximizes is the way he cares about it. The banker does something else. They have different preferences and their different preferences and their different constraints lead them to different choices. But these different choices are not the source. There did be an inequality and be a growing inequality between the two. But if the other one doesn't want to trade, 
It doesn't want to change spot. So the monk doesn't want to become a banker. It's it's hard to have any judgment that's negative on this because both parties are telling us what they want, what right. makes them flourish best. And I'm glad you brought that up because right after that section, the essay, if I, if I remember correctly, you get into the idea, you use this as an opener and then you get into the idea that we have to be concerned and at least take note of what kind of measurements of inequality are at play and why it's important to scrutinize and at least look at what was really going on there. Because I think a lot of people, they see some sort of statistic like, uh, you know, an income distribution graph and they say, okay, this is bad or this is good, et cetera. But, but you go into the, into the essay and basically say, well, the first thing we should do before we talk about the implications of the inequality yep. is scrutinize the measurements. So for people that aren't as used to these types of measurements or, or dis discussions like this, why don't you go in, into a few examples of the types of ways we can measure inequality and why we should always be very careful when we look at them. We don't want to get too, too technical, but at a high level, it'd be nice to like maybe hear a bit about that. Do you have a full day for this? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Let's see what we can do, right? Nice. We're looking at the timer here. Let's give ourselves like a few minutes, okay. like five minutes or something like that. And like, go ahead, like okay. chat, chat me up. Like, so let's talk about so that. generally the one that people tend to picture in their head when they start the conversation on inequality is income inequality. Right. But the problem is with income inequality is that it it's, it's a poor measure. If, for example, you get, so think about it this way, 1960, uh, most people don't live that long and generally enter the workforce relatively young. Today... The young actually enter the workforce much later because they've gone to university, they're going to university. Mm. But not only that, but the older workers retire and live long periods of life. So we got two groups who are earning net, literally zero for a longer period of time at the beginning and a longer period of time at the end. But the thing is, is we know from economics that the students are going to say, oh, look, I have, I'm going to university, I have greater education, I have greater income prospects in the future, so I can... I can basically ask for a loan that will finance my consumption now. The same way that people who are retired now in the previous period just accumulated savings and now are consuming their savings. So while there's this demographic shift that's happening, income inequality is bound to increase as long as this shift is still occurring. However, if we look at another measure like consumption inequality, hmm. where we take what people are consuming, which uh, for a certain, a certain way factors in the issue of time, right? right, and how they project themselves forward and where they come from, we actually find that there's a lower level of inequality first and foremost. And we also find that there's actually a lesser increase uh, than with other measures, which in this case shows that we're capturing changes in demography. And changes in demography are probably like the, the type of inequality that we should be the least concerned about. It's just well, people aging. So, for example, uh, Magne Mostad from Chicago uh, re-estimated in certain countries keeping age uh, constant what happens to the rise of inequality. And he finds a much, uh, much lower uh, level of inequality, inc a much lower increase in inequality. Uh, and only that, each time you try to make these adjustments for things that we are not concerned, so either having what we call an age-adjusted inequality measure uh, we find a lesser increase that actually matches the increase in well, in consumption inequality. But each of them is much smaller than the increases you get from uh, from metrics like just income inequality per se. And there's also sources of inequality that actually cuts against those two. Uh, for example, there's a paper that I just published with Peter Lindert from uh, UC Davis, and it's uh, cost of living inequality. And what we did, we, we tracked from the late 17th century to the early 20th, uh, uh, inequality in the cost of living. So who's basket, who was having the cheaper, uh, 
whose basket of uh, goods and services was getting cheaper faster. And we find it as actually a great egalitarian trend in terms of prices for most, for example, of the 19th century. So that means that we have to consider that there's another source of inequality when we, so we don't just pile up nominal incomes or nominal consumption is we have to like put in a real term, right, to adjust for inflation. And what we find is when we adjust for that, we actually find, for example, for most of the 19th century and the early 20th, much smaller increases in inequality and actually in some situations, actual decreases. Uh, so you want to have this ability to like pile on these measures because the more you have of them, the more your dashboards becomes heavily populated. And that heavily populated dashboard gives you the ability to zero in on the different sources. Is this a good inequality? Is this a bad inequality? So for example, where people were saying, look, uh, so I'll take the example of the cost of living inequality I've just mentioned. Uh, for most of the 19th century, the rich were growing very rich through innovation and technology, but these innovation and technologies actually made the poor or much more productive workers. And this is a really important point because the part that explains why the rich, their cost of living went up relative to those of the poor is because the poor used to work for the rich as servants or as in services to the rich. If productivity goes up in other sectors, the cost of hiring the poor of hiring unskilled workers to, to work for rich people is actually increasing. So what we find is that that element on the dashboard allows us to see that, A, we're underestimating how much gains the poor have had, but how much they're actually able now to have more and more choices and be in their own employ or uh, or be an employee and, and very remunerative uh, pieces of work. And here, these innovations make them better off in terms of living standard. There are also innovations that improve their living standards on other dimension, be it uh, health, be it education. All of these suggest like a very rapidly raising uh, uh, tide, which is basically carrying the poor forward. Uh, but then when you look at you look at the dashboard here, well, I don't see a bad inequality in this situation. Uh, however, like another form of inequality that uh, we may find interesting is, for example, uh, inequality when it's tied to, so for example, Diana Thomas from uh, Creighton University uh, took the cost of living inequality that I just mentioned, but for the late decades of the 20th century, so like 1990 to, to today, and she plotted them against uh, barriers to entry, so basically regulations mm -hmm. uh, into certain services. And what she found is that the regulations were actually uh, uh, anti-poor in a sense that we're in they were increasing the costs of goods and services uh, to the poor more than they did for the rich. Uh, so in a situation like that, you actually had a source of bad inequality. It was that uh, government policies had a regressive effect uh, by restricting entry into certain trades, and especially trades that matter heavily to the poor in terms of the goods and services that these trades produce. Right. I really like the metaphor you use of the dashboard, because if we're really talking about trying to understand equality is a big picture, right? Like we're talking yep. about how are two people, let's say, we'll just take that as an example, uh, unequal, right? Like you said, you can't just look at one thing, income, for example, you can't just look at consumption to look at everything. And the barriers to entry is very interesting too, right? For some reason in the society, I'm going to make up in my head, if I'm allowed to open up I don't know, a bakery and uh, a certain shop that sells food. And that's the w one of the things that has a huge demand in our little town, but you're not. That's a source of inequality as exactly. well for whatever reason. Exactly. And also we want to account for, so this is the hardest to, to, to measure. There is, uh, we want 
household, for example, income mobility, uh, how easy it is for people to uh, overcome their initial uh, birth conditions. Uh, and there is a measure that exists for us. It's called inequality of opportunity. Now, it sounds like a, like each time people say this, it sounds like it's just how do you measure opportunity? Well, you can you measure it as a residual, whatever isn't explained by people's choices. So the amount of hours that they work, their educational choices, the rest you can attribute at least to some degree to the level of option that they got at birth. And there was this guy, Nicola Pistolisi, in the Journal of Economic Inequality that checked what happened to inequality of opportunity in the United States since the 1960s. And what he finds is that, yeah, total inequalities increase, but inequality of opportunity is actually pretty much flatlining. Hmm. So that means that the difference is either choices, right, or uh, the source of bad inequality from, say, subsidies to uh, establish industries, barriers to entry, uh, tariffs, whatever it is that props right. up the rich more than it does the poor. That would be one more on the dashboard right. that you care about. That way you get your general picture and you can disentangle because this is the problem in the inequality debates. People tangle up everything without considering that if we're economists, we understand that what we care about is well-being. Right, we care about people's overall well-being, overall well-being. and we don't want to do policies that reduce their well-being, or at least reduce their options in terms of how they can further improve later on. Then we need to to arrive at that. We need to make this disentanglement, which very few scholars uh, actually try to do, because a it's hard, but it also requires. A, knowing some economic history, uh, being able to do some economic theory at the same time, and then taking the time to just look at it from a more uh, calmer perspective, detached from uh, the public sphere, and then build up piece by piece the elements of the dashboard to arrive at a more cautious view. Yeah, and, and in some cases, it's not even just like when you move this discussion from the academic or the economic sphere and into like, let's say the public sphere, I'm thinking of like politics, like a, the political narrative. Yep. The, the thing is that it's not even about disentangling things. Often a, a news article, an op-ed or whatever is reported on will focus on one thing, like we were saying before, yep. which is what you shouldn't do. Like it'll say, oh, this new stack came out of whatever university. Usually it's income. Look at this, you know, inequality measure there. Therefore, people are less better off. And, and as you've been explaining, you can't make that jump, right? You can't look nope. at one factor and say overall people are less better off or more better off because of that factor. Yeah, you need, you need other pieces of information at least to say, okay, this is something we should be concerned about. As I think there is, so I say, I come at this from the purely economics perspective, but that economic perspective is actually a good servant to a series of different views. One of the views is my own, which is I'm a classical liberal. I don't hide this set of of. Uh, ideological preferences that I have, but it's subservient to economics. My economics come first. And the virtue of the argument that I make is social Democrats can take this on, conservatives can take this on, and just do the disentanglement uh, for a conservative. What a conservative would care about is the argument of natural order elements on, on this dimension. Then if we can convince him that some of these inequalities are actually uh, not part of a natural order, then he'd be like, okay, maybe I'm willing to change my opinion on this. Uh, if it's against, uh, for example, from uh, uh, a more progressive person, a more progressive, uh, a progressive voter would say, oh, look, this is, uh, it's offensive on the perspective that this person is being harmed and prevented opportunity to, uh, to improve his own well-being. So using a proper positive science approach first at least clarifies and untangles 
really large elements so that at least on some for every potentially every uh, potentially political view uh, there's actually improvements that can be arrived in terms of uh, arriving at more sound arguments without being mutually exclusive between them. Yeah, and I'm glad you actually brought that up because that's one thing I noted in, in my notes here to talk to you about. And I, and I really like that about the the article. Again, I'll say the title, Inequality, Transaction Costs, and Choice. Um, you said that the an, an economics explanation to inequality, well, it speaks to liberalism, has universal appeal. And that's what you just said there. And I really like yeah. that. And, and you make the point in the essay once or twice, but worded differently, that you're taking an economic approach to inequality rather than one of political ideology. And I think that's very powerful because I think it's, although one who's reading an economic paper should assume, well, of course, like, you know, Vincent's an economist, he's taking an economic point of view. I like how you enforce that in the essay in the paper because that that's very important for people to remember that. I think a lot of people tangle up the entire conversation and, oh, like, uh, you know, Vincent, yes, he's an economist and he, and he says X, Y, and Z, but he's also a classical liberal. So then that's where he's coming from. But in reality, you're saying that the trick to understanding all this, again, is you've got to keep that separate. And, and it's also yep. important how the economic analysis can serve all views, because yes. it, it ultimately you're just talking about facts and trying to understand the way it actually is. At least under, arrive at an understanding of if we care, and I think that's the common element to each of these views, is I mm. think even the, the most radical in each of these political groups uh, would still adhere to the idea that human flourishing is something we ought to desire. Hence, in this case, let's try to understand what actually is happening in terms of flourishing. Is it people's choices? Uh, so, for example, the Benedictine monk ab reductio absurdum that I'm using, or is it something like uh, uh, a particular industrial uh, industrial sector that manages to convince uh, government to erect barriers to entry, uh, and that way it forces consumers to pay higher prices, reducing their overall standards of living. Uh, which type of inequality would we find offensive? The first one is the monk and the banker one. Is it's hard to be offended, right? Regardless of your view. But then the other example, well, from progressive to conservative to classical liberals to whichever hold you view, whichever view you hold pretty much everyone finds this category of this source of inequality. No, this is not okay. Right. Uh, then the disentanglement to, 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 to get to understanding that the division is you need this dashboard of, of measure and the understanding of economic theory because how each indicator is uh, theory laden. So you understand what it means to see this indicator in that direction given this other indicator. But let's shift gears a little bit to one thing that I, I I noted in your essay as well that I really enjoyed. You you talked to that there's this there's a standard narrative uh, specifically for for Americans as well where where there's there's high taxes after World War II. I want to uh, talk yeah. about this because I think a lot of listeners can relate to this. It's a it's a current political talking yeah. point and it and it's also been one in the past. The, the narrative goes something like this: that, you know, high taxes after World War II meant less inequality. That's full stop. Now inequality is out of control. This is kind of like that tax the rich argument and stuff. So what I what I like to do is I, I want let's you, do some economic let's history. do some let's do some economic history. Yes. I'd, like you to, I'd like you to get into this talking point um, and, and and to get the details straight, not only from the his, historical perspective, but then tell us like w what factors are actually at play in the that actually cause the inequality measures that they're talking about. Okay, so let's just think on in, let's just stick on income inequality. Okay, if you take Income inequality in the United States, Canada, or most actually Western countries, what you find is over the course of the 20th century, you have a, a high start point in the beginning of the century, 
And then there, what, what is people like uh, Peter Linder and uh, Jeff Williamson called the great leveling. So there's a rapid collapse in inequality. Uh, there, the extent of the speed of that collapse is debated, but there's a collapse that reaches a trough sometimes in the 50s and 60s. And then in the 70s, it starts inching back up to the higher levels that now everyone is bemoaning. So there's a U-curve of, of inequality. Now, to, under, to explain that U-curve, there's like a, a narrative that says uh, free markets in the, 1920, in the 1920s and late 19th century, that period, and then rapid rise in, in taxes and a larger welfare state, declining inequality, and then uh, a reversal of the size of the government. Uh, so there's a, a, shrink, a shrinking of government sizes post 1970ish which brings back inequality which brings back up inequality that storyline is largely inaccurate because a there's the element that i mentioned for example of the fact of the cost of living inequality so once you accounted for that for up to the 1920s you find a a much lower level uh, as a as a first element so it's not as high as people think it is uh the second part is that the decline that happens in the 1930s is largely related to the Great Depression. So this is not something that we want to have. It's basically uh, a lot, lot, lots of people with large, uh, uh, large incomes that depend on capital gains gets wiped. So the, right. the measurements of inequality drop in that period. We'd find this largely hard to say. Oh yeah, this is a good fall in inequality. No, it's happening while. People are getting poor, like clearly not a good period. Right. We, we can all be equal and have no money. That's yes. possible. Right? So. And and then but then there's a few other forces that work until the 1960s that are pretty mundane uh, as a set of sources. So, for example, uh, in the United States, uh, capital is moving from the northern states to the southern states, which is basically implying regional convergence within the country. That regional convergence will create a force towards inequality independently of any policy. But this is a pretty mundane force. We have something in like intro macro that we teach our students. It's called a solo growth model. Is capital moves from rich places to poor places because the return on one unit of capital in the poor place actually is greater than the rich place. This is why capital was moving in the US, but was was actually reducing inequality. That's a mundane force that economics can easily explain. Another force that is working in the same direction, but by people leaving the South, what's happening in the 1930s and 40s and 50s is black Americans from Southern states are moving to high wage, uh, high wage states in the North. So they're actually increasing their economic opportunity, which also creates a leveling and inequality. None of these elements, the two that I've mentioned now, have anything to do with state intervention and high taxes. These seem to be more mundane market forces operating to level down inequality. Uh, then in 19, uh, the, the long trough in the 1950s and 60s is reaching that true debt mechanism. And then when you look what's happening since, uh, it's hard to say if it's a reduction in the size of the state that because of reduction in taxes brings up the rich more. There's a series of other explanations that are much uh, much simpler for this. One of them is, for example, in the United States, the large incarceration of the black American population. Uh, there's a large penalty associated. We know from econometric testing that there's a large penalty associated in earnings from having been in prison. So normally your incomes follow a, a curvilinear trend. So you, they keep increasing up to your prime peak age, and then they start decreasing as you grow a bit older. 
Uh, but when you look at prisoners, it's a much flatter line. There's much lesser gains in income, holding everything constant. So it's just that prisoners, former prisoners, would carry a large burden, a large stigma for a long time. Imagine a large, a growing share of the American population, A, with a level change in their incomes and a trend change in their income. You're bound to get an increase in inequality just by that force. Mass incarceration in the United States, although it doesn't explain like a the gigantic share of it, does explain a non-negligible share of the increase. So there's people like... Uh, uh, Bruce Western and Becky Pettent, uh, two sociologists, have tried to try to get at least a grasp of the extent of inequality uh, changes because of uh, 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 mass incarceration. Uh, they find a non-negligible impact, uh, sizable enough to notice. Uh, same thing, for example, with the case of immigration. So uh, uh, this one is uh, works for both ends of the curve. Uh, one of the great thing that's happening in terms of the reduction of inequality, I say great, it's not great at all, it's actually sad from a human welfare perspective, is that in the 1920s, there's massive curtailment to immigration in the United States. And these are substantial curtailments. People don't appreciate how, for example, the 1924 Act that limited people entering uh, actually prevented low-wage people from Eastern Europe, from uh, from Southern Europe, from uh, from the Middle East, from Asia to enter the United States, get higher wages. But when you had a large inflow of immigrants, they were actually increasing inequality when the first batch was entering. Later on, when they they start converging, they actually pick up or their kids converge with the national average. But if you prevent immigrants from entering, you're, gonna, you're bound to get a reduction in inequality. But from a perspective of human welfare, we've deprived all these people of greater opportunity. And we find the same thing. And now on the right hand is that since the 1970s, there's been mild liberalization of immigration policy in the United States, which will also pile up the increase in inequality. So how do we explain this U-curve? Well, if we understand the dashboard, we understand the different sources of measurement and the economic history, we can get in a much different narrative where, although taxation is not an irrelevant factor, it appears to be one amongst many and probably not the most important. And I think that's an excellent place that takes us right to our break. So we're going to take a break right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm talking with Vincent Geloso. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Amy Willis, Chris Rondolo, and Rosa Pajarello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Vincent Geloso. So, Vincent, in the first half, I think we, we did a great job of getting our discussion on inequality and understanding it better going. I'd like to shift gears again from what we were talking about before. We were doing a bit of the history of the post-World War II sort of inequality story, or pre, during, and post, I should say. But um, let's shift over to some other things that you talked about in one of, one of your papers here. You, you said... At the end of the day, inequality does bear economic costs, though, and it's important to understand what those are. So, so let, let's get into what you mean by costs as an economist first, for people that might not be as familiar with that. And, and then, of course, let's get into what specific costs inequality brings. So for me as an economist, the cost that I care most about is transactions costs, because the larger the level of transactions costs, 
the lesser the amount of trade there is between people. Transactions cost is basically a barrier to trade that people have that is due to uncertainty, difficulty in precising contract limitations. Uh, it's it's basically the every form of institution we devise as humans. Uh, and I can use the uh, the beautiful uh, Hutchison quote where it's uh, uh, the institutions we create are, are emerge out of human action, but not human design. Uh, these in these institutions that emerge out of human actions are all about dealing with transactions costs because it, when we deal with them successfully, we expand the amount of exchange that we can do. Uh, and that means that we grow richer because there's more room for trading. Uh, what I mean now with the cost of inequality is that, and this came from uh, an economist who's in no way a classical liberal, which goes back to the point of this is about economics. Right. And if it serves your ideological views, hooray for you. Right. But you don't have to be a classical liberal to adhere to the economic standpoint that I have. The best example is Sam Bowles, who's an economist out of Santa Fe uh, and in New Mexico. And he writes a lot on inequality. And one of the points he makes is that Inequality creates a cost because we're uncertain of the person of, with whom we're trading. Uh, and if we have distrust for him, for that person, uh, we're going to have to expend more resources into neutralizing the risks that we think that they're going to pose for us. In the process, these are resources that we cannot use for other purposes, which makes us poor. Now, I disagree on certain margins and nuances with, with Bowles' argument, but it is still a, a valid point in essence. If there is an extent of distrust that's created between different individuals because of the sources of inequality, then we're going to be poorer as a group. So for example, if it is, and this is a good example of we look at studies of people's perception of income distribution, people are actually willing to tolerate very unequal distribution as long as they perceive that there is A, a chance at upward mobility, and B, that there is uh, that those who reach the top have not cheated their way to the top. They haven't stealed anyone. They haven't got special privilege by law. And uh, that is incredibly powerful because, A, it tells you that what we should care about is the institutions that generate this. And then these institutions, the part that Bold makes as a point that affects future growth and where I tend to agree with him, is that once you've managed to, like, to acquire a special rent and a special protection or privilege from, from a state as, I don't know, we'll use an example that's pretty Canadian, Bombardier. Uh, you get a big subsidy. You're a happy camper as a subsidized, but people scorn you. People look, hate you. You go in public meetings and there's protesters that are there and you need to expend resources now to have security guards to protect you. This is, although it's on a, like I'm, I'm over, I'm ad reductio absurdum uh, here, but these resources that you expend on your security because people distrust you in the way you've acquired your wealth are resources that are now no longer available for other purposes that are about creating wealth. Like research and development, for instance. Yeah. So this is, a, this is the argument by, by Bull is that, A, the, the, the acquisition, the privilege itself is wealth destroying and the process of protecting this rent afterwards is also wealth destroying. And that is why I think we should care about the bad inequalities, those that emerge either from birth, uh, but these are really hard to combat, by the way. These are very inelastic, hard to change over time, uh, and probably very costly. Uh, plus, luck really is a hard thing to control. However, the ones that are actually the easiest to control are those that uh, 
deal with policies that restrict the chances of those at the very at the very bottom. And that's why my argument is we should care about at least the cheapest form of bad inequality that we can deal with easily. Mm. That's policy removing at the very least this is why i call a first do no harm approach to inequality before we do any redistributive scheme anything like mike munger's like uh, universal basic income or whichever measure before we do any of those a proper conversation to have is which policy should we remove first to at least allow people the chance at upward mobility uh that's the part that I care more about, even though there might be, we can debate afterwards, certain redistributive schemes. Right. First, do no harm is remove things that are actually hurting the poor and their chances of upward mobility. So remove barriers first before yeah. getting into lifting income or you know money from wealth from yeah. here and redistributing it there. Yeah. Before messing around with distribution allocation, let's yeah. remove barriers is what you're saying. Yeah. Plus, there's also like a pure like a, a pure public policy perspective. So I'm, I'm an economic historian, but sometimes I do veer into public policy is there's a lot of counterproductive policy when governments decide to tax the rich that they've subsidized first to redistribute to the poor. It seems that there's a lot of shuffling going around and that shuffling as a cost economically because we've had to tax the first time we've distorted incentives the first time but through taxation. And then we've also distorted incentive through subsidies. And then we're going to take a part of it to redistribute to the poor. Oh, come on. Just remove the subsidies first. Or the and special it, privilege. Or, or the whatever. special privilege first. At least at least you'll the, the first do no harm will at least stop canceling the pyromaniac trying to be firefighter. Maybe maybe they wouldn't be having you know, monopolistic like control over a certain market if they weren't given monopolistic like control, yeah, right? But but it's incredible how people underestimate these controls. It's true, yeah. So like just like let's just look at Canada. Uh, airline industry, mm -hmm. uh, barriers to uh, no foreign firms can provide services between Canadian cities. Uh, so this is there's no th these are laws on cabotage. Uh, telecoms industry, no foreign provider with more than a certain with less than a certain percentage of Canadian shareholders can enter the Canadian market for telecom services. And Bell built its empire with it's, special privilege. Exactly. So uh, and then you have uh, something similar in um in broadcasting, uh, you have something, you have uh, industries like busing in Canada. Uh, so intercity busing where a state, a provincial government uh, grant uh, monopoly licenses to certain corporations. Uh, pile these little examples on each individually is pretty small, but each of them come to either costs that are borne by consumers that make them poor but also sometimes by workers who are prevented opportunity. So my favorite example here, and the, the probably of those that are the largest, is zoning laws. Zoning laws are basically the most regressive transfer that there is in the world. Uh, people who at point A act are living in a very productive, wealthy city. They have access to all the econ the, 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 the benefits from, uh, from being in a, in a network that's a city. They're much more productive. And then... They restrict entry into the city by saying it's we're going to make it hard to uh, to build new buildings so that new mm. workers have a harder time to come in. And the extent to which people want to access the city pops up demand for being in the city and all of it is capitalizing the price of houses. So think about people in Vancouver today who have three, four million dollar houses, which look like brown houses that are really, really, really small. What they're doing is, A, preventing the poor from accessing the very productive city of Vancouver. And it are doing is it's a regressive transfer that ends up in the in the hands of somebody who's relatively old, but also relatively wealthy already. 
uh, and you're making him much richer. This is a quite a regressive transfer mm-hmm. and a very large one. Uh, pile these on to the other ones to this, and what you get is that a large share of total inequality that we bemoan isn't caused by uh, by the rich being greedy or evil or by or the how poor, much you're taxing them or the poor being lazy which some people will just sometimes some people actually do say that probably more on the conservative side right uh none of this uh seems to be relevant when you compare to all these policies that probably explain the lion's share of of the total increase and level of inequality uh i would put more emphasis policy wise on things that at least from the first do no harm perspective, reduce the ability of people to move upwards. Right. And as, and as people listening to this are trying to keep all this straight in, in their head, because we've talked about a lot, like I, I think the dashboard metaphor is still really great, right? Is that what we've done so far is, is just add more and more to that dashboard, right? Where yep. we're, we're painting m- more of a picture of an understanding inequality. And, and as we've heard, and as you've explained it, it's, it's not back to how much we're taxing people <laughs> no, it, <laughs> singularly, it, it, singularly, and it's not yep. back to just, you know, uh, other things like yes, exactly. not one thing or the other. Yes. And it's, and, and especially in, in something as complex as inequality, mm-hmm. you can't have these simple statistics. You can't have the pickety kind of story, even though it's, not as if like his work wasn't a good first move in terms of measuring it because i like that we at least try to measure things before we start it's a good start (laughs) it's a good start but you can't compress really complex complex world of choices that people make into simple tidbits like this it requires a much colder approach to analysis that's first science detached. So you try to do some science with it. Doesn't mean that you're free of biases and priors. It just means that you, at least you try that beforehand with the dashboard analogy. You get all the measures you can, all the interpretations in, and then you try to weight things differently. And then you can bring in whatever ideological interpretation that you want to have. And uh, since our time is winding down a little bit here, I want to shift gears to, to something else. It's a, it's a little bit more of the sure. political and ideology discussion because uh, we talk mostly about the economics here, which which is very important. But in in the paper, uh, inequality, transaction costs, and choice, you 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 say, and I'm paraphrasing you a bit here, that when it comes to classical liberals, often we find that a classical liberal argument sometimes downplays the true costs of inequality. Yes, and you say it is far more likely that if this point, the costs is advanced more rigorously, the classical liberal argument can convince more. So since this is ultimately a classical liberal podcast, let's spend some time on that. What do you you mean by that? So what I mean by that is that the cost of inequality, the fact that there is this... So imagine again the example of the people's tolerance to very unfair distribution. Right. Uh, If people are not willing to... If they're seeing the system as quite unfair... They'll tolerate much lower levels of inequality, first and foremost, right? Because they're not represented by choices and opportunity. They're actually finding this as privilege. They'll tolerate less of it. There'll be more strife. Strife is costly. Distrust uh, is costly. Uh, the fact that I have to expend resources to protect myself or just live like in a gated community and not, and just live with people who are just like me. These are forms of costs. And these pile on to be relatively important. And more left-leaning scholars like Lane Kenworthy and um, and Sam Bowles actually do have a point here. But classical liberals would do well to import these elements from them that the, ver- the bad sources of inequality are quite costly, very costly, not in terms of only redistributing 
regressively, but also in altering the trend of future economic growth towards a lower, flatter level of of increases in income. And if we are if we are classical liberal, the thing we care most about is human betterment. Right. And I mean, I don't want to sound all Deidre McCluskey here or Mike Mungery, uh, like whichever it is. Uh, what we only care about is human flourishing. We care about people having more choices, more chance at exercising agency, and a more uh, a more comfortable uh, uh, standard of living. Uh, the costs of bad inequality is altering our ability to pile up on human betterment. Right. And as you were saying earlier, that when people uh, see so much bad inequality, right, ultimately inequality ceases to be like sort of a non-factor in the way people look at things, but they, they start viewing the society as unfair. Yep. And then they look at inequality, bad inequality is one factor in that unfair society, and then they zone in on the, in the inequality, and that, that's, a, that's ultimately yes. a bad and thing. Yes, and then it creates distrust in institutions, right. first and foremost, even if sometimes they're not that bad institutions, but it also generates violence. So the one part on, so for example, another example of someone we're reading on the topic is Walter Scheidel, who's an historian, uh, points out that most high levels of inequality uh, have been reversed through not exactly true policy, but true really hardcore shocks, uh, like fucked up situations. Oh, sorry, I had to swear at least once. We, we so, said we said if you kept it limited, yeah, but for effect. For, for and those it who know me, once right. it's just like quite. Well, I think that it's, works. It's, it's impressive that I've only cussed once. But these these uh, these important reductions that we see in history are largely uh, from wars, famines, natural disasters. Uh, Basic, sometimes nearly civilizational collapses, like the case of the Roman Empire, from which uh, Scheidel specializes in. Uh, but in each of these cases, the common element which Scheidel doesn't emphasize in his own work is that most of the time these were very unfair distribution, in part because they were rent seekers. Rome was a slave society. Right. It's still worth pointing it out that, yeah, I, right. I think that summarizes it. It does, yeah. No, it's 100%. Like, and like you said, like, it's not only understanding that you need to have that full dashboard, as you're saying, but also but also that uh, that understanding how the inequality comes to be. That, that's so important. Yep. And uh, and honestly, I, I may have just stolen a bit of your thunder. Who knows? But since our time has basically wound down here, uh, as you know, you're a listener of the podcast. You know, the way I always like to end it is we want to give the guests the final word. I want you to bring everything full circle and put a finer point on everything we talked about if we can i know we've talked about a lot so let me ask what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways here for someone listening to you on whether we should care about inequality if we can sum it up a there's three types of inequality the good the bad right and among the bad we break them into the ones that are from birth and the ones that are from policy we should concentrate on those that are policy-wise because they're the cheapest to address and uh, they're the ones that not only are the cheapest to address but make people feel more comfortable because at the very least, those that come from birth, to some degree, if we don't put artificial barriers in people's way, they can be conquered by, uh, by people. Uh, that would be the main takeaway. Uh, the second main takeaway would be understand that one single statistics of inequality is not going to tell you anything. You need a larger dashboard. You need to understand the context in which each of these indicators are moving so that you're like, okay, like the immigration falling, like for like to use an example, immigration falling by just pure mathematical reasoning 
no economic implication is bound to reduce uh, inequality. But from an economic perspective, we don't want that, right? It's it's bad. It makes poor people worse off. It reduces their chances at upward mobility. Bad inequality, right? But for that, you need two dashboards. You need two pieces of information and an element of theory that links them together. If you try to say anything about inequality without this theory-laden dashboard, dashboard of indicators, you're as useless as someone who's voting in the House of Commons. And I think that's an excellent way to end it. So yes. we will do so. Vincent Joloso, thank you very much for speaking with me today on The Curious Task. It's a pleasure. Oh, yeah. Uh, I want this podcast to get more views and more listens than Mike Munger's stuff. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>